So Lord, we thank you for that entrance into discussion about you. And this is really all about you. We are here to learn more about you, Lord God. And so we ask that in this time, you would reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you delight to reveal yourself to us. You delight to give us more information um, for our heads and uh, more information for our hearts that we might draw near to you. And we thank you that you have drawn near to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we give you thanks and glory and honor and praise, and we look forward to what you're going to do in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, I will recap a little bit of what Mark Janelette said, since it seems as though so many people weren't here for those last two weeks. So we're looking um, in in this three-part series, you're coming in, you might be coming in on part three of three. So in parts one and two, we looked at, um, well, first of all, overall, we looked at the threefold office of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but throughout um, theological thought history that threefold office is the way that many people look at the leadership so it's a it's a way of identifying the leadership throughout Old Testament history throughout the history of the people of Israel and then it looks um, with Jesus Christ we look at Jesus Christ in light of this threefold office throughout the leaders of Israel and how he essentially fulfills the expectations and the hopes that were um, made at the time of with those leaders um, in Israel. So we see Jesus ultimately being the fulfillment of those three kinds of leaders. So we looked at the three kinds of leaders being um, prophet, priest, and king. Um, and just one note before I kind of break those down is that um, Calvin, especially John Calvin, really looked at this threefold office, and it's an important part of his of his theology. Um, and he looks at scripture specifically with this in mind, looking at those three offices. So the first office, we've, we talked about um, prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus Christ, the, the fulfillment of the re, these three. And one thing that Mark said that I want to highlight that's really important that stuck with me was that Jesus is not the ectype. He's the archetype. I don't know about you, but I went home and looked up ectype. I know what archetype means, but I went home and looked up ectype. And ectype is like the prototype. It's like the first try that doesn't really make make the grade. It's, um, it's um, a representation, but not the ideal, not the ultimate um, fulfillment of the hope expressed. Um, in the archetype, Jesus, as the archetype, he is the real deal. He is the one that all of these, um, all of these leaders throughout the Israelites' history look forward to. They anticipate in some ways um, Jesus Christ. They prepare the way for him by giving some dim picture of what Jesus Christ will be for the people of God. They're just dim shadows of who Jesus is and the kind of leadership that he has. Um, so we get a sense that um, there is a provisionality on the ground, that God is providing for his people leaders um, even though they're incredibly flawed. And we see this in um, the leaders of the prophets, the first prophet being Moses, right? We see Moses um, lifted up as a prophet, and then we see um, the prophets also tied to the judges. So we see Samuel as a prophet. Um, there's a prophetic as- aspect of the judges throughout the book of Judges. Elijah 
Elisha are the great prophets. And then after them, the prophetic tradition continues. And we have this sense in which there are people upon whom the word of God rests, that they hear somehow directly from God and they proclaim the word of God to the people of God. So that's the prophetic office. And then the priestly office, we look at that, the first priest being Aaron um, in the Old Testament. We see that happening right after the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt, brought out of slavery, brought to Mount Sinai. And there the priesthood is created as a way of allowing sinful Israelites presence into a holy God in worship. Um, And so Aaron is anointed for this office specifically. And you see that this anointing throughout scripture happens. Anointing happens as um, an overflowing, a pouring out of oil on the head of the person chosen for leadership by God. And that person, that anointing then sets that person apart for that work. Um, And so basically those three offices were anointed. We know that priests were anointed. We know that later on kings were anointed. And we know too that some prophets may have also been anointed. Um, So when we look ahead, well, we'll get back to that anointing in a little bit. Um, But with each of these, and we'll look at kingship in a minute, that third one, that's what I'm tackling today. Wow. Um, So when we look at those three offices, we get a sense in which each representative in each of those offices is intensely flawed and sinful. The people need a leader. They need um, a leader that will represent God to them and be essentially God's man on the ground. Um, but we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures that these, these representatives are flawed and sinful. And we get the sense that they're looking towards someone to come. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, there's the sense in which there will be a prophet greater than Moses. We know in the Gospels that they were expecting a prophet greater than Moses. Um, They expected that prophecy about this prophet to come to be fulfilled. We know that um, with the temple and the atonement that was made there for sin in the temple and before it in the tabernacle, it was never a done deal, was it? You had to keep going back. When you read um, the Torah, you see in those first five books of the Bible, they're describing the rituals for cleansing from sin. And again, that cleansing from sin allowed sinful Israelites' presence into a holy God in worship, allowed them entrance into relationship with God. That there is, um, they have to keep coming back, right? Because they have to keep sinning. So, and we see it even in Hebrews. We looked at Hebrews today, and Craig preached from Hebrews, but it talks about the blood of bulls and goats not being enough. It's not enough. And you get the sense you're looking forward to this coming atonement. Jeremiah hints at this in Jeremiah 31, 33. He said, um, I w- God is saying through him, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The law needed to be put actually into the hearts of the Israelites because it didn't stick. Sin was pervasive. They kept having to come back um, with a new sacrifice, a new lamb, a new goat to atone for their sin. Um, And there's a sense also within Jeremiah and the other prophets that there's this great day of forgiveness coming. They look forward to this great day of forgiveness. So we know that 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 Old Testament office of the priest was not enough 
to atone for the sin of the people in the bigger scale, in the bigger picture. Um, and then looking at the king, the office of the king, we see throughout the Old Testament um, that there is a sense of the kingdom of God. We see that phrase, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you see the phrase throughout the New Testament a lot. We see it all throughout the Gospels, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus says in John chapter, or Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is in the kingdom of heaven. You see that in Matthew especially. So what is this concept of the kingdom of God? Because that will help us understand a little bit more about the king. Um, one theologian describes the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. I kind of have to sit with that one for a minute. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So you see it even from the very beginning. We look back to the Garden of Eden. If we use that definition and that criteria, then we can see that in Eden, God created man and woman for himself, right? We see they're his people. God's people, they're in this place, this garden, with its boundaries. Um, they're in this delightful place of beauty, of, of lush, um, and, and green, and fruitful plants, and trees, and uh, copious animals. You just think of all of the um, cornucopia of beauty in the Garden of Eden. That is the place that God puts his people in. That's where his reign extends there. You see um, God's people in God's place and under God's rule. There's a sense in which um, they are under his rule. Adam and Eve are told, you shall not eat of the tree that's in the garden. So you know that there's this sense in which they're expected to observe God's rule because they trust his, his lordship. They trust that he is worth listening to. Um, so even in Eden, we see a sense of the kingdom beginning. And then, of course, there is that fall from the kingdom. There's that fall from that relationship with God as Adam and Eve take from the fruit and eat. Um, and they're cast out of the garden as a result. But all is not lost. And we see in those early chapters of Genesis, we see things get worse and worse and worse after the garden. You know, in the days of Noah, you see people are eating and drinking and all sorts of other things, and God's judgment is poured out upon the earth. Um, but coming back through Abraham, we see this resurgence of the kingdom again in the promise that's made to Abraham in chapter 12. God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a sense in which um, God's place is going to be this place that he gives Abraham. Abraham is his man for it, and his descendants will be his people, and, um, and they will follow him. They will obey him. There will be that sense of obedience to God's rule. Um, we know that that doesn't fulfill, it, it doesn't happen 
perfectly. It doesn't happen at all. We see his descendants not obeying God. We see um, they, do, they don't get the land quite when they want to get the land. Um, but there's that promise given to Abraham, and that could be seen as a sign of restoration, a sign of the kingdom. Um, we, God saying to him, look, we, and to the people on earth, we ha- I haven't forgotten about the kingdom. The kingdom's going to happen. This will happen, that we will... Um, this will be realized in your midst. Um, So then again, if you were to look at the Exodus going on through the Old Testament, if you were to look at the Exodus, it could be seen as a kind of duel or a battle between two kings contending for the people of Israel. Pharaoh wants the people to be enslaved in Egypt. He wants to use them and abuse them. And God is saying no to that, and he's calling his people out of slavery into Egypt, out to Mount Sinai, specifically says that he wants to call them out, not just out of slavery, not um, to free them just from that, but to free them for the purpose of worshiping him at Mount Sinai. So he's um, bringing them out to his place, to the mountain. They will be his people, and they will be under his rule. And that's where he gives the law the sign of obedience um, to him, that sense in which God is Lord and his people are like him in his kingdom. Um, So then also we get that promise of the Holy Land, the promised land, right? As they enter into the promised land, there is God's place for God's people, um, for um, them to live in peace and harmony and relationship with God. Um, any questions about that before we look at the actual kingdom? Just looking at that idea of the kingdom um, being presaged in these pre... This is before the Davidic kingdom. Remember, this is in the Old Testament for Israelites before the Davidic kingdom. Any questions about that? Thoughts about that? That the kingdom is hinted at even that early on because of looking at the aspects of the kingdom that I talked about. God's rule... Um, God's people in God's place. Well, I'll keep going. Um, So then we see, you know, as they're in the promised land, they're trying to conquer the promised land, and they're trying to um, take this land that God has promised to them. Um, And and with the judges, we see that they follow in the book of Judges. I don't know if you've read the book of Judges, but it's um, it's kind of racy. You kind of have to keep really have to explore it um, in wonder, well, what's going on here? Um, But you see that these judges, one after another, are set up, and they are almost like pre-kings over the people. They're like tribal leaders who have prophetic gifts and who are leading the people in battle. They're leading people in battle to continue to conquer the land for um, their own pur- for God's purposes in their midst. Um, and the people come after the judges. You see throughout the judges, the whole book of Judges could be said to be an apologetic for a king. You look at the judges, it all could be said to be an apologetic for a king. See how badly we need a king. See how badly we need someone who will ride out with us um, in battle. See how badly we need to be like all the nations around us who have a king, um, who's very visible, who's a sign for us, um, who's, a, who's a unifying factor. Um, and we see that. It comes up in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 8.5, the people beg the prophet. He's a prophet and a judge. They beg the prophet Samuel, appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations and to go out with us in battle. In other words, we want to be like the people around us. 
We want a king who looks good in a crown. We want him to, everybody to know who he is. We want him to have fancy clothes and for him to ride a special horse. And we want him to lead us so that we'll win, right? They want a king just like everyone else. And essentially what they're saying, and this helps us understand all, the, all that's gone before, essentially what they're saying is uh, we don't want God to be our king. And first Samuel looks at that because Samuel himself feels rejected by them. And God reassures him. God says to him, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you, but they have rejected me from being king over, over them. So in asking for an earthly king, in some ways they are rejecting God's kingship that was you know, made manifest through um, in Eden, then through the choosing of Abraham. They wanted something more tangible, not this abstract, God. oh, God is my king, great. Well, they wanted something very tangible. They wanted to be like the people around them. So God gives them a king, and this king that God gives them, it is a concession, essentially, to their sinfulness the sinfulness of the people of Israel, but it's still part of his plan. This is one of those mysteries of God's plan. Yes, he gives it to them, and it's not the best thing. The best thing would be for them to be able to have this abstract idea of Yahweh as their king, to have Yahweh be the one that rides out in battle with them tangibly. And yet, the earthly kings are also a part of God's plan at the same time. The people ask for it, and he, okay, I'll give them a king, even though it shows that they've rejected me. Then he gives them this king. That first king is Saul, right? And we remember Saul is then followed by David. Saul really doesn't cut the mustard because he doesn't listen to the word of the Lord. He doesn't obey. Um, He's not a very good steward. So these earthly kings, the best way to understand earthly kings throughout the Old Testament is to look at them in terms of their stewardship of God's own rule. I don't know about you, but I am a big nerd when it comes to Lord of the Rings. I'm also a big film nerd, so it's kind of on my mind. Even though I haven't seen The Hobbit yet, when the dust settles around here, I'll go see The Hobbit. Um, But I love those stories, and I've read The Lord of the Rings this is embarrassing, but I've read the trilogy at least eight times. <laughs> I know, I know, it's embarrassing. But you see these glasses. I am a real nerd, bonafide. Um, and so I love, I, you know, in fact, I was looking for a trivia game on The Lord of the Rings, and the only trivia games you can find online are the ones on the movies, and that doesn't cut it for me. I need a trivia game on the books, because the movies, that's, that's, that's uh, peripheral. That's just sort of fluff that they came up for the masses. Um, <laughs> I know, isn't that terrible? (laughs) But if you're at all familiar with this story and the plot line of The Lord of the Rings, you'll see there's, uh, and again, J.R.R. Tolkien, he's a Christian, he's a a Catholic believer, um, and you, you see Christian themes in his work, but what's beautiful about it is it isn't a one for one ratio. It's not an allegory where you can say, well, this is that, and this is that, and this is that. Um, he was good friends with C.S. Lewis, and if you're familiar with Lewis's fiction, Aslan is so clearly Jesus, right? It's just so <laughs> clear. And if you say that in some circles, atheists will get really upset and they want to reclaim Aslan. You're like, no, it's just Jesus. You can't, you can't really, good luck with that. Um, but in Tolkien, he, what he does is he takes different qualities of the coming king 
kingship is really important in the Lord of the Rings, different qualities, and he assigns them to different people. So there isn't this one-for-one one ratio. You have It's a little more um, complex than that, a little more interesting in some ways for that complexity. One of the things about the two about the king in the Lord of the Rings is you see, I don't know if you remember, but you see these two kingdoms that are divided, right? There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, their last king died, and the heirs to the southern throne are also the same as the heirs to the northern kingdom, but the northern kingdom kind of had to go underground. So the southern kingdom is carrying on, trying to carry on in all its finery, and they're carrying on without an actual king. So the person that sits on the throne doesn't actually sit on the throne. Remember, he's called the steward, and there's a conflict about that. When Aragorn comes out as the coming king, there's this conflict between the steward and the coming king. Well, this whole notion of the kingdom in the Old Testament is a kingdom of stewardship. Those kings are not really, they're kings, but they're really just kings in Yahweh's place. And so there are problems when they, when they forget that. You see that with Saul. There are major problems when he forgets that. He stops listening to the Lord and starts go, he starts improvising, and it's not good. Um, and yet the best king of all is, of course, David. Yes, King David. King David does obey the Lord. And here the promises in the, made to Abraham about the kingdom, if you think about the kingdom with that kind of artif- slightly artificial thing I put, but I love it. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That begins to be promised and you see an aspect of its fulfillment in the Davidic kingdom. That there the people are safe from their enemies around them. There's a sense in which um, they're unified and they're brought into um, the, the, the Jerusalem itself becomes a major focal point at this point, at this point in Israel's history because of the ability to br- build it up make it a beautiful city, and then later on in uh, Solomon's reign to build the temple. Um, there's a sense in which those promises are beginning to be fulfilled in some way in David's kingdom. And David is chosen as a king, and he's um, characterized as a king by his heart for the Lord. And we see that in worship, in the way he worships the Lord. He wants to build a house for the Lord, and he says this in 2 Samuel 7. He wants to build a temple. They've been wandering around, and the tabernacle, carrying the presence of the Lord around, uh, was mobile. He wanted a permanent establishment. And and God says, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And he says about David's son, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son David, he's talking to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What a beautiful promise. How wonderful it must have been for David to hear that promise, even though he he wanted to do something for God. And God then said to him, no, I'm going to do something for you. And it's actually not just for David. It's for the people of God, this promise of an everlasting kingdom with this son of David. Their best king didn't even have a corner on the coming king. And so the people of Israel, you see this throughout the rest of their history. They live in hope 
of this coming king. And to be honest, it went from from great in David to to not to okay with Solomon. You know, it was really wonderful, and they had the wealth of the nations were brought into Jerusalem. They had a lot of victory, but and there's the big but. Everybody remembers Solomon's sin. Um, he he began to include apostate worship in the worship of Israel. And so um, he brought, he allowed his wives to bring their gods. Um, he had many wives, and his many wives brought their own worship into Jerusalem. And that's what began to distract the people from worshiping Yahweh. So it's under Solomon's reign that things begin to head south. And then after Solomon's reign, the, thing, the whole thing divides. You get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So can you imagine this promise of an everlasting kingdom in the midst of the divided kingdom? Well, how is this? How are we going to be an everlasting kingdom if there's two of us, uh, if we're not even united? And that's my other Lord of the Rings reference, right? The divided kingdoms, I've always thought that. In the Lord of the Rings, there's that northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and I think, oh, that's just like the Bible. That's just like the Bible. Um, so... As they're looking, they're waiting, they're watching, they're hoping um, for this coming king in the midst of all of the reality of um, a divided kingdom. And then later on, as a result of sin, they're taken off into Babylon and into Assyria. First, the northern kingdom goes to Assyria. Then the southern kingdom is taken into Babylon as judgment for the sins of Israel. And so what must they have been thinking? What must the people of Israel have been thinking in that time? They were waiting and longing for this coming king who would fulfill all these promises of God, who would make God's own reign present on earth. Even when they returned to Jerusalem after the exile, we know from those prophets, especially Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they were still looking ahead for the coming king. They knew that they hadn't arrived. And this is where we get all of those amazing prophecies. The prophecies that we got to hear about today with all those beautiful children dressed in white with their red sashes. And I had a front row seat so I could see their na- the names. Did you see any of their names? Malachi and Habakkuk and Haggai. They were the, they were the prophets heralding the coming king. How sweet, how beautiful. We see that throughout scripture. I'm just going to batter, I've been battering you already with all of this, but I'm going to do a little more with these scriptural verses looking at the coming king. So starting with um, Psalm 2, we see the prophecy of the Messiah, the coming one, um, the son of David. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and God says to this king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, there's that promise to Abraham fulfilled in this coming king, through whom all nations will be brought together under one rule. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the Lord says through the prophet, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And then later in Jeremiah 30, the people, the redeemed people of God, will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Ezekiel also bears witness to this coming king who would be David's son, who would fulfill God's promise to David. My servant David shall be king over them, shall be king over these people who will be gathered into one kingdom on their own land, 
saved from all of their backslidings. It actually says that in my version of Jeremiah of Ezekiel, their backslidings. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That sounds familiar, right? God's kingdom, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then we have those great ones that we're preparing to hear. We're so familiar with these because of Advent, because of Christmas. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There is this sense in which each one of these prophets is speaking into this longing and this hope, this, and then that becomes an expectation based on God's promises that he would come and actually be their king in their midst, but that he would also be a king that they could relate to and identify with, that would wear a crown and ride on a horse and wear the right clothes, right? Um, there's the sense in which they're waiting and longing for God's victory in their midst. God's victory through the, over the external circumstances of their lives, but also the recognition that there needed to be victory over the darkness in their own hearts, the darkness in their own inability to uphold the law. So we find ourselves today in a similar situation to those people following those last prophecies about this coming king and the birth of Jesus. There were 400 years of silence between the last prophecy in the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus Christ as a little baby. We now, too, are 2,000 years after the birth of that baby, that baby who was a king, whom kings adored, and whose kingdom was not like what anybody expected. The kingdom is inaugurated at the birth of Jesus. Remember the wise men coming and acknowledging his kingship. Herod gets jealous, wants to kill him because he's afraid that this little baby will usurp his throne. The kingdom is inaugurated at Jesus' birth. It's realized, though, at his very death. Because if you have a king then you have a throne. And the throne for Jesus is the cross itself. That's where we see him, and John is so clear about this. Jesus is lifted up high over the earth, exalted, exalted because of his sacrifice. And yet through that exaltation, as he's lifted up, and it says it, we're going to find it in John, he's lifted up, like a serpent, just like that serpent in the desert, in the wilderness. Um, he's lifted up. Um, I'm going to find it. Um, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus Christ is lifted up on our behalf, lifted up on that cross, spanning the world, that all would look to him and be saved, that all would look to him and find that true light that shines in the darkness, 
knowing that because of what he has done for us, um, we then, through faith, are righteous in him, freed from our sins, brought back into relationship with God. And that kingdom then begins, not just in our hearts, but in the world around us as we live out our faith. So as we're waiting, as we see things around us, as we see that hardness within our own hearts, you know, I see it always in the sins that are persistent, you know, the ones that just won't go away, and you think, I would really like that to stop. I'd really, and I'm trying, I'm really trying, it's not, I keep, I keep trying and it's not going anywhere. Or, um, or in, that, so there's that internal darkness, but there's also that external darkness, and we can't help but think about it, you know, with the shootings in Newtown. How dark is our world? How dark is the evil around us? If we're in denial about the darkness in our heart, we can look outside and say, no, there is really some evil out there in our world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So if you're in denial about the darkness in your own heart, that's the way to look at that and say, no less with me. Am I above that so much so? Am I perfect? Is it not in me as well? And for both of those problems, which is really the same problem, there is the one solution, and that's God giving of himself, giving his very own son to come to live as one of us, to take on our human nature. He being perfect, being divine, humbled himself to become like us, so that we might be forgiven, healed, restored, brought back into relationship with God, and one day seated with him in that kingdom that will never fail. And we see a glimpse of that kingdom prophesied in Revelation, um, where there is a new heaven and a new earth. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will be our king once and for all, and then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. O Lord God, be born in our hearts today. We give you thanks and praise for the birth of your Son, Jesus, the Messiah, the coming King, the one who has come and the one who is coming. And we say with those words in Revelation, Come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Come and restore our hearts. Forgive us. Heal us. Bring us back into relationship with you. For we long to go back to Eden, but we can't find the way on our own. Show us the way through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.